This episode of the GCSAA podcast is presented in partnership with Bayer Environmental Science, a company committed to providing technical expertise and innovative solutions that maximize turf quality and make superintendents' jobs easier. For more information on the company and its offerings in the golf industry, visit environmentalscience.bear.us and look for the Turf and Ornamentals Management tab at the top of the page. As always, our thanks to everyone at Bear for their continuing support of this podcast. Well, hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is episode 35 of the GCSAA podcast, our final episode for 2021. I'm Scott Hollister, the editor-in-chief of Golf Course Management Magazine, and we're excited to have you with us for what we think is a very special episode. You know, one thing that we have wanted to do with the podcast is to utilize it as a way to introduce listeners to some of golf course management's uh, most influential figures, folks who have made, or in some cases continue to make, an indelible mark on the industry. Uh, In most cases, you probably know about these people and maybe even a little bit about their stories, but we've always thought the podcast gave us the space and the time to kind of go even deeper into who these people are, what makes them tick, and why their time in golf either was or still is so important. And really, we couldn't think of a better person to start off this unofficial series than Mr. Paul R. Latshaw, really one of the foundational figures in American greenkeeping. Paul was the winner of GCSAA's Old Tom Morris Award back in 2017. He worked at a who's who of America's greatest courses throughout his long career, places like Augusta, Wingfoot, Oakmont, Congressional Riviera. And he influenced a whole generation of superintendents who studied under him and now work at golf courses all over the country. We were so excited to get some time with Mr. Latshaw and think you'll really enjoy the conversation that he had with GCM's very own Howard Richmond, who conducted this interview for us. As always, a reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the GCSAA podcast if you haven't already. really helps others find us when you do that, so please take a second to help us out wherever it is you get your podcast. And as a bonus, you can also get access to all 34 previous episodes of the podcast and all those same great services, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google. So if you missed any of those, you can always catch up by checking out our archives. With that, let's get to it. It's episode 35 of the GCSAA podcast featuring Howard Richmond's conversation with the great Paul R. Latshaw. Well, hello, everyone. I got to tell you, I'm thrilled to be here with the one, the only Paul R. Latshaw, who I also call, and I probably don't say this to him enough, is a living legend, but I'm sure there's others that say that enough to him. So what else can you say about Paul? Uh, there's a whole lot. He's at the mountaintop of his profession, an icon among superintendents. There's, there's no question about that. And four years ago in 2017, he was a recipient of the GCSAA Old Tom Morris Award, our distinguished award that has been given to so many greats in and, in and around the industry. Talk about Bob Hope, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and, uh, you know, it's just uh, a who's who's list. So, Paul, just want to say thank you for joining us and, and being part of this. How are you today? Thank you for asking me. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. I'm going to just kind of jump in and ask you a few questions. You know, the, the one thing I, I like to say about you is, you know, if there's a Mount Rushmore of superintendents, uh, there's no doubt you're front and center. You, you, you've worked at destination courses 
Augusta National, Oakmont, Wingfoot, Riviera, Congressional. Not a bad list. And you're the only superintendent who has hosted the Masters, four of them, the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. And talk about achievements. What, when you just talk about that, what you've done as far as major championships and the places you've worked at, what, what does that achievement mean to you, Paul? That's funny you asked that there. I was thinking about that question. And uh, I remember I was at home and I got a phone call from uh, Dr. Dewey asking if I'd be interested in taking a job at Augusta. <laughs> the first thought that came to mind, if I do that, I'm going to have the big three on my resume. And that was, that was quite exciting. That was exciting. <clears throat> yeah, kind of. Let's go back a little first. Let's, let's kind of, with all those great achievements, it all started in a place that had, what, 60 residents in tiny Red Cross, Pennsylvania. I want to go back to the beginning with you, the start of your life. And really, your storied career in golf really nearly didn't happen. You go back to 1962 is when you got discharged in the U.S. Navy. And really, the plans was for you to return to the family farm in Red Cross and work there, a place you grew up in a pre-1900 log cabin to boot. How did that plan change from when you left the Navy to going to the farm to what in effect transformed into a stellar career in this industry? I was really fortunate. Uh, I came home and in my mind, I had really planned on taking over the farm. And but being in the Navy, we were over, we were out of out of the country more than we weren't. And so I was up to date with what, what, what my father was doing. So when I come home, there was no more chickens on the farm. He had sold them all. The cattle were all gone. And he said, there's no job for you here because there's nothing for you to, to do. And uh, it was a low point in my life. I'm not going to lie to you because I really planned on being a, a Make farming my career. So I, I knew I was going to go to Penn State in that fall, but I needed a job for the summer. So I applied for unemployment at the Sunbury Unemployment Office. And they said, you know, there's a golf course being built up in Danville, Pennsylvania, and the, the superintendent is asking for someone who knows how to drive a tractor. Well, that's one thing. Ever since I was 14 years old, we I was on a tractor at the farm, either plowing or cultivating or doing whatever. So I went up and I met with Bruce Denning, the superintendent. And uh, he said, I've been on a golf course before. <laughs> I've never been on a course before. And he shows me the, the practice screen. And I was amazed that I've touched the grass. Couldn't quite believe how I felt and how good it was. Quite amazed with that. But he took me over to the barn and he had uh, two different tractors there. One was an old Jacobson that had the old gear shift on the floor. I said, I, anybody can drive that thing. That's a hot rod. And then he had a tractor with a front-end loader. I said, I don't know how to use a front-end loader. I don't know how to drive that tractor. And uh, he hired me. And uh, that was a blessing because uh, I started to work there. And I have to tell you, I was only there three days or whatever. I knew that that's what I wanted to do for a living. Uh, being outdoors and beautiful surroundings. Dirty. It was clean. When you're on a farm. You got the dust from the combine and the straw and the dust and all that. It was perfect for me. 
And that's where I started my career. And I was very fortunate. And having someone like Bruce Denning take the time to tutor me and got me into Penn State in their two-year program. And uh, I think that was one of the two major steps in getting my career off, off the off board. You want to know what my second step was? I uh, I was fortunate to get hired at Oakmont Country Club. Uh, that gave me exposure to uh, major events. Got to meet Arnie Palmer, and him and I became quite good friends. And I think he played a big role in helping me with my career, help my career grow, I should say. Hey, Paul, I want to go back on the part about when you, you know, when your dad said, now the no need for you here. When you told him you were going to get into the golf industry, what did they think? And did they have any other ideas before you made that decision that maybe what you should do with your life? Well, you know, uh, I don't think mom and dad knew anything about golf. They were, they were country folks raised on a farm, oh, Pennsylvania Dutch. I don't think they were ever any more than 50 miles out of, from home. And until I went to Navy, I was the same with me. So, uh, they really didn't know anything about golf. And uh, dad was always sort of laid back, didn't really say too much. So uh, I don't think he, a career in golf didn't mean anything to him, really. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. You, you, I was asking also about Bruce Denning. You have mentioned him when you got your start at Frosty Valley Country Club in Danville, Pennsylvania. What do you remember about Frosty Valley and what was it in particular that really helped him send you on your way? What kind of things did he say to you or do and help to kind of mold you and shape you and what you became? Well, you know, uh, employee-employee boss relationships are usually supposed to be sort of standoffish, but Bruce took me on his wing from the day one, I think maybe because he also was a Navy veteran and I think he liked the fact that I really took an interest in doing the work. And I worked hard. I, that was a, the old Pennsylvania Dutch inheritance. You put a full day's work in. And uh, I think he was proud of the way I took it. He took me to different greenkeeping meetings and superintendent meetings, whatever, and introduced me to turf. And he just set the stage for me to really get interested in the profession. Uh, I owe him dearly for that. Uh, he certainly uh, would, have, would not have done what he did to help me along. And we were friends up until he passed away a few years ago. So we stayed together all those times. He not only was a, a mentor, but a very good friend. When did you know, Paul, that you were ready to be a superintendent? It's something I ask a lot of guys and, and gals in the industry. And what, when do you know it's time? When did you know that you were ready to move up and, and be that person? I'll be very frank. Uh, I thought I was ready, but I, I was very fortunate. My first job, I was not really prepared for it. I mean, I had only worked, I think, about two years in the industry, worked for Bruce Denning and Frank Sirianni in uh, Swickley, and I got the superintendent's job. But I was lucky at that time, the golf industry was going through a major change where a lot of the old superintendents were retiring, and there was really no one to take their place. and the uh, the industry recognized, or the clubs recognized, that they wanted people that had a college education. So when the job moved up in Michigan, and I applied for it, they hired me. Uh, and I was very fortunate they did. And I have to tell you, the first few years I struggled trying to 
learn how to do the business. And again, that was very helpful that Bruce Stanley would make trips up to Michigan and give me guidance during that whole period of time until I really felt comfortable being a superintendent. Was there a turning point as far as you knew you were, okay, I'm really on the right path to being this superintendent now? Was it in Michigan or was there a time late, a few years later that you thought, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the path, I'm on the way now, I can do this and there's no doubt? Well, you know, I don't think there was ever a question about that. Uh, when I worked at Frosty Valley, I knew I loved the golf industry. I loved the work. And I like the fact that the superintendent profession gives you one thing. You control your destiny. You know, you're given a budget. And then you no one's overseeing you. You go to work every morning. If you want to work, no one's there to watch you. So you can control what you accomplish. I think that's that was a major thing for me. I felt like I had control of my destiny. And I like that there. And uh, I think. In fact, I tell everyone, that's the great thing about this profession. Where else can you have that kind of control? No one's there watching you every day. You, you're your own boss. Uh, of course, you have budget limitations, but you can. that's your job, to make the most of the money that you have to make your job good. I think it's perfect. I loved it from the day one. I really did. There was no doubt in my mind uh, as a superintendent, naturally, uh, at those days, you know, my first job, they paid 7000 for my first superintendent's job. And, uh, of course, you heard of people making thirty, forty thousand. 40000 So you worked hard to you want to get the next job, the bigger job. And that was my drive. Let's face it, money is maybe cause of all evil, but it's also a great incentive to do better. And uh, so we worked hard at getting good at what you're doing. And it paid off for me. I can say that. Paid off. I talked to a lot of people for the story I wrote when you won the old Tom Award. And one thing that kept coming up was your boundless energy. You're known for your for that just energetic aura. And, you know, you, you were creative to explore possibilities and you were a forward thinker. How did all those traits drive you to become an industry stalwart? And where did you get that drive from? Well, I'll never... I'll always regret, I mean, not regret, be happy that I come from a good old Pennsylvania Dutch family. They're a hard worker, work hard every day, work seven days a week. But the, the big drive was uh, you're never satisfied with what you have. You want to make it better. And so throughout my career, always trying to make things better. So you try to find different ways, different methods, different whatever to do a better job. And I think that was, and I would say that to anybody and it gets into business. You can never be satisfied with what you're doing. You always want to do better. <clears throat> yeah, I was kind of talking about that also. I was uh, chatting with uh, former, another great superintendent uh, at Marion, Matt Schaefer, uh, who you've known for a long time. And he told me that you changed the industry. But what's your thoughts when you hear somebody say that about you? Well, I don't like to, I'm a modest person, but I definitely changed the industry. Uh, we, uh, we made playing conditions that were unheard of at that time. Uh, uh, greens that were super fast, hard, firm, fairways that looked like greens. And uh, 
rough that was penalizing and championship turf. And we had uh, developed methods of doing it, sort of outdated maybe, or more uh, labor intensive, but the results were fantastic. Uh, and I think all the guys that had worked for me kept passing those traits onward. And, and I think that has really raised the standard of golf. Uh, it really has. Is that something you try to instill on your assistants about, you know, think outside the box, never hesitate to try or ask me or bounce ideas off me? How did you uh, approach them with all that? Well, my firm believer in lead by example. And uh, so we would do that. And I got a lot of hard nose. You probably couldn't get with this day and age, but being an old military guy, we set rules and we enforced them. Uh, and so <laughs> we, got, we got a lot of productivity. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. Speaking of creativity, let's, I wanted to touch on that. Congressional Country Club thing in 1993 that I wrote a little bit about, but you could probably explain it better than the way I wrote it. About you came with and came up with the idea how to cool greens at Congressional, and talk a little bit about where that idea came from and how you did it and pulled it off. Oh, really? Uh, I I can't take credit for that. Uh, when I was at uh, Augusta National, the 12th green had a cooling system, <clears throat> so there was no doubt about it. During the summertime, that was our best screen because we had cool, cool soil temperatures. But when I was at Congressional, <clears throat> we were having a difficult time at the first year or so. I mean, it's the worst time of my life, really. But we kept losing grass on our collars or on the greens all the time. And I would buy sod from Alex Rahosa from Pittsburgh. <clears throat> and Alex came in different times to visit. And he was saying how he was had an experimental green at his, uh, at his nursery where he was blowing air into the into the subsurface and was draining draining the water and that would cool the soil temperatures down. And I'll never forget the first day we went out there, we hooked up a tractor with a blower into the drainage the exit drain. And I came back about an hour later and the water is running out of the tractor blower. That much water was being released from the green. Oh, this is fantastic. So we, we did all the greens. We started doing it with all the greens. But the big thing about it was the temperature would change, but not as much as I really wanted. So my friend Tom Wade, <clears throat> he's, always, he's always an inventor. He gets the idea we're going to blow the air through ice to lower the temperatures in the greens. And it worked. We lowered the temperature probably three or four degrees. But it doesn't sound like much, but that's a big difference. And then he went on, he's the guy who should give the credit. He has gone on to develop a, a major system now for cooling and heating greens. So he set the seed, but he followed through on the idea. It's getting to be a pretty commonplace thing in the industry now. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. Well, by that time, you knew that the U.S. Open was coming to Cong Congressional four years later in 1997. And... You know, that has to be among your shining moments of the many shining moments. A, a former USGA official delivered the ultimate compliment to you. He said it was, in quotes, the perfect golf course. What do you recall about that major and what, what made it perfect from your vantage point? I think that statement was uh, derived from the fact of a 
a storm that came, but there's no doubt about it. We had 18 greens that were firm and lightning fast. We had fairways that were hand cut with mowers, hand mowers, green mowers. So we had a actually a, a fairway had a plank service like a green, only a little bit higher cut. But the main thing is we had a penalizing rough that was uh, five inches high, grown upright, and it was a true test of golf. But the big moment, I think what stemmed the USGA to say this, was the night before, it was on a Saturday night, and uh, Matt Schaefer, who's a good friend of mine and one of my former employees, uh, he always comes with my tournaments, and we were walking over to the tent to give the instructions, and he said to me, he said, Paul, he said, it looks like we're going to have a major event without a rainstorm. And I said, yeah, isn't that true? We get into the tent and we're starting to give instructions and I get a phone call from Tim Morgan, who was a USG agronomist. He said, Paul, don't send your crew out. He said, there's a cell coming by. It looks like it's going to be a downpour of rain. And then about 15 minutes later, the clouds open up and we had, I think, three inches of rain in a 20 minute period. And during this time we're in a tent there, I'm telling the guys, when this thing stops, I know darn well, they're going to be called. When can we start playing again? And so I said, well, I said, I said, you go out there, you check these greens. Want to be sure we have no water on the greens? Want to be sure there's no washouts on the bunkers? So when they call, I can give them an answer. Sure enough, about 15, 20 minutes, they're calling. When can we start playing? And by that time, I had the feedback back. I said, you can start now. And there was a moment of silence on the phone. The guy said, Paul, can we play now? I said, yes, sir. The course is ready. I think that's where the USGA come up with that comment, because they were shocked that that course was ready after a downpour like that. How proud of you are. How, you've got to be proud of that, what, what was accomplished there for that weekend. That was a moment of glory. It sort of summarized uh, a few years of hard work to get the course in the condition it was. We had, uh, I mean, we struggled to improve the soil structure and get better grass varieties. And all that time just was worth it during that one moment. <laughs> that one moment made it worth the whole effort, I can tell you. Yes, sir. Yeah, and for the, rec for the record, another old Tom Morris Award recipient, Ernie Ells, he uh, he won that tournament. So it, it, it was yes. yes, yes. True test of golf. Is there another major that you oversaw that stands out to you? If you had to pick another one besides that, what which one would it be that really you look back on extra fondly? I think it would mean the uh, U.S. Open at. Uh, Oakmont, uh, I think it went into a tie and uh, had a ended with a sudden death on the second hole, I think it was. Uh, that was quite dramatic. Uh, pretty exciting. I'll never forget, I stood by the second green and uh, we were cutting, so doggone short, but the, the one more, it was on a side slope, had a sort of a groove in the, in the surface. And I think it was my half his ball was right on the on that groove, he put the ball and just followed the groove right into the cup. <laughs> I could have made that putt. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. I, you know, you and I were talking about the the time that another old Tom Morris Award recipient, Tom Watson, uh, 
spoke to you at the at the Masters once, and he, in fact, he called you. Players were critical of green speeds. He wasn't one of them, but reminisce about that story and the call you got from him and what he said and kind of what that meant to you for him to reach out to you and connect. Well, I, I uh, prior to the uh, Masters, we had a lot of tour players uh, play before uh, practice before the event even started. And all of them were very critical about the green speed and the firmness and so forth. In fact, it got to be sort of a game. We would put rollers by the, the greens just to antagonize them. <laughs> and uh, but during the during the event, number one, Mr. Harden would call me in the mornings too. He said, Paul, are, are the greens okay? And I said, well, they're, uh, they're hungry, they're thirsty, a little off color, but they're healthy. And But I could tell in the mornings when I was giving my uh, instructions, the guys kept looking at me saying, are you okay, Mr. Latcher? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Not realizing what was going on. And it probably stems back when I've had my first event, Richie Valentine gave me uh, probably the best advice I ever had. He said, Paul, during a major event, you don't listen to the radio, you don't watch TV, you don't read the newspaper, because I'll guarantee you someone's going to be critical of what you're doing. So he said, you got your program, stick with it. And I followed that through my whole career. But so when I got this phone call from uh, Mr. Watson, and when he said that, I, I knew, I said, I was right all this time. There was a, a lot of complaining going on. <laughs> and But he stood by me, uh, and he was one of the few, I guess. But uh, the main thing was, it was rewarding to know that we were causing a lot of heartaches. Because you were a championship is a test of golf. It shouldn't be an easy, shouldn't be an easy thing. The winner should have to earn earn it. That's my feeling. And we gave him the true test for it. What was it like to be the superintendent at Augusta? What made that different than the other stops you had in your illustrious career? Probably the biggest benefit, uh, Mr. Harden had a rule that uh no member or press was allowed to interview or talk to the superintendent. So I never had any complaints. <laughs> so you could go around the golf course all day long and say hello to the members and you know, nobody's going to complain about it. They wouldn't even talk to you. So I guess that was a, a great benefit because every other job you have, I'll guarantee you're going to have somebody complain about something. Oh, that's great. Well, Paul, we're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be back in a moment uh, with you and the conversation uh, with uh, the great Paul Atshaw. We'll be right back. We'll get back to this episode in a moment, but right now, a word from the proud sponsor of the GCSAA podcast, and that's Bayer, a company committed to supporting golf course superintendents as they strive to maintain healthy, beautiful, and playable turf. Bayer shares that drive and is always looking for ways to help superintendents up their games. They're also committed to providing new, innovative solutions that maximize turf quality, along with technical expertise that helps superintendents maintain their edge against hard-to-control turf diseases and damaging insects. Among those innovations is Densacore, a new DMI fungicide that helps control dollar spot, brown patch, and thracnose, snow mold, and gray leaf spot with one simple solution. You can learn more about Densacore at es.bear.us slash Densacore, and that's D-E-N-S-I-C-O-R. 
Another new tool from Bayer is Tetrino, a game-changing insecticide designed as a complete solution for controlling white grubs, annual bluegrass weevil, and other devastating turfgrass insects. For more on that product, visit es.bear.us slash Tetrino, and that is spelled T-E-T-R-I-N-O. Bear reminds you to always read and follow label instructions, and not all products are registered in all states. As always, our thanks to everyone at Bear for their support of the podcast. And now, back to this episode. Um, you know, I want to ask you also about being a superintendent, obviously something you know so much about. How important was it for you on a daily basis to jump into the fray, get your hands dirty with the rest of the crew, and just be part of the whole operation? Well, I really feel to be a leader, you need to be a part of the organization. And I never wanted the, my employees to think that I felt I was better than them. So uh, I always thought it was good to jump in and give them a hand, especially some of the more tedious jobs that nobody wanted to do. Never hurt to jump in there and do it. And then there's no doubt about it. There's, there's some dirty jobs that people, off, you know, if you have an irrigation break, for an example, it never happens during the day when the crew is there. It happens on a Saturday night or a Sunday night. So you have to call your key guys in to help do that there. And so I always thought if they wanted to come in and give me a hand, there's no reason I can't jump in that hole and give them a hand also. Uh, and I don't see any, I know a lot of people think the superintendent should have this uh, professional image. And I know at different clubs, I would criticize at times by members say, why are you out there doing this? You're supposed to be a supervisor, but I'm out in the field or other than in the office. And I think I do a good job of keeping the, the, the progress going, moving forward. What are a couple of the most parts of that, of getting in the mix? Did you enjoy the most when you got your hands dirty? What, what really did really pump you up to do when you were out there? Well, I think it's more or less just to get the job done and, and keep moving forward. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Uh, I got, oh, every job that I had in the past had irrigation troubles. And... You know, a lot of guys, you get it on and you dig the hole and now you have to fix the thing. And most of the guys really don't know how to do it. And so they would be surprised. I'd jump in and grab the wrench and fix it. <laughs> they were sort of surprised I could do that. So uh, I think that's the way it was. Yeah. Over, the, over the years, you've had more than 100 of your crew go on to become superintendents. What, what does that mean to you? And that's it's a great feather in your cap. How do you feel about that? I think of all the achievements that you talk about that I accomplished, I think that's the one I'm proudest of. Uh, you know, just an example, here's Paul Rabina, comes all the way from his job, comes in here to help with this broadcast to do this. Uh, just dedicated. The guys uh, worked hard to help me with my career, and I feel it's my obligation to help them. And uh, I'm so happy to see that the progress. You know, I had a lot of uh, interns would come and uh, they knew they were in the business and they went on and come very successful. But probably the key moment is the guys that came in that had no idea about what the golf business was and they would learn and they go on to become maybe a, a full-time employee at the club or some of them went on to become superintendents. I think I really helped change their lives and I, I think of all of my accomplishments. That's the one I'm proudest of, to help other people progress. Yes. When did you know they were ready? 
to become a superintendent? Was there a time that you said, yeah, that you're ready to move on? Well, that's a good question. Uh, they, if they work, for, you can tell they have a, they have the drive and the ambition. And uh, I think the question was more around. I think most of the time I thought they were ready before they thought they were ready. Uh, and so, uh, if they thought they were, if they would ask you about helping get get a job, I never hesitated because. After they worked for a season or so, I was able to observe pretty much if they had what I thought what it was needed, and uh, so they went on their own. They did good. They did good, and I'm proud of it. Proud of every one of them. Yeah, talking about people that have gone on to become superintendents, there's somebody named I think Paul B. Latshaw. I'm pretty sure that's your son. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you a little bit about him. What? Yeah, he worked. Why do him? <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. What he uh, worked at Muirfield Village, Jack Nicholas's club. Now he's at Marion Golf Club. Two two fantastic facilities that are well known. Did you always imagine him, Paul, following in your footsteps? I don't think I was ever surprised that he followed my footsteps. When we moved to Michigan. Uh, my wife was pregnant at that time, and we moved into an area that we didn't know anybody and had no relatives or whatever. And so when Paul was born, he was not with me all the time. I can still picture him running around on the golf course in his diapers. And uh, then when we moved to Cleveland, he would go along with me to the golf course in the evenings after come home from school or whatever. And I remember handing him a hose of water. I always wanted to hold the hose of water and him hanging on to the hose and the hose was dragging him all over the place or the squirt all over the place. So he, and then when we moved to Oakmont, uh, he was old enough to work in the summertime. He started working there. So he had a background to get into the, get into the industry. But uh, when he uh, started going to, college, he uh, asked us, he said, Daddy, I'd like to become a superintendent. And uh, I said, well, I'll help you. But I said, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to, I have three people that I think you need to work for during your summer internships. And uh, first I had him work for Dick Bader at Pine Valley. I thought Dick was probably the best tough grass grower ever in this industry. And then I had him work for Tom Tanta, who had his own uh, irrigation construction company. I always thought it was good that you get experience on doing construction and so forth. And then I had to work for uh, David Stone, who down in Tennessee. Davis is a, uh, he's, he's a, I'd say a, just a good people person. Uh, good people skills. And I thought those three things are extremely important in being a successful superintendent. Managing people and knowing all the diffs and butts of doing a job. Do you see, does he mirror you in the way he does his job? Are there similarities? Are there differences? You've been around him. You've gone to see him at places he's been in charge of. He does an excellent job. I'm very proud of that. Uh, I think everybody, every superintendent has their own methods of, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And I, I'm not saying that my way was the only way. Uh, he has uh, a lot of things. He did duplicates, I think, things that we did. But he has his own program also. And uh, it's been very successful, very successful. So 
give him full credit for everything he's done. I was going to ask you if an aspiring superintendent comes to you and asks for advice, perhaps wants to know what it takes to be successful in this industry. What are some of the things you would tell them? Well, number one, if you are a superintendent, uh, never ever be satisfied with what you have. Uh, there's always room for improvement. Uh, and I always encourage superintendents if they want to improve themselves to try to participate as a volunteer at a club that's having a championship or something, because there you see management at its peak. And I can hardly believe anyone could be a volunteer and not walk away not, without learning something. Uh, so you don't want to ever be uh, complacent with what you have. There's always ways to improve it and uh, try to get the most from the money that the club has given you. Utilize that to its full extent, especially in your labor management. I was going to ask you about your thoughts on and views on the industry right now and what your outlook, what it, what's your thoughts right now on the industry? It's, it's changed throughout the years, but right now, what are your feelings on it? Well, to be a superintendent right now is a very trying moment. Uh, with the COVID and labor shortages, and definitely a supply shortage, uh, the guys are really working with their hands tied behind their back to a certain extent, yet the expectations are the same or even greater. And there's a, thank goodness, golf is really growing right now. So there's a increase in play. So the superintendent today is really in a difficult position, but uh, still the best position, best, uh, best occupation ever, as far as I'm concerned. Where do you see it going in the future? And how would you, how, what direction would you like to see it go? How can improvements be made to help the superintendents and their crew and, and things like that? Well, the one thing that kept me going in my career was incentive to make more money. I said, maybe sounds greedy, but you want to make more income, have a greater income. And uh, I think the superintendents are, the profession is slowly being re recognized as the focal point of a successful country club operation. I've always said every time, I don't know how many budget meetings I've been in in my career where they, I remember the one meeting I had, the guy said, you spend my like a drunken sailor. And I said, well, I was in the Navy for five years. <laughs> so what do you expect? <laughs> but uh, I can always say that it, my, I increased every budget that I worked at dramatically, but the bottom line of that operation always got better because there was more business in the club. There was more golf activity. And the club became a friendly place to be, memberships happy, and the, the club and actually grew financially. Technology obviously has changed a lot through the years, equipment. Was there a piece of equipment or technology that you would say really transformed what a superintendent does and how he can do his job? Well, the first thing that would come to mind on that question is the, the utility cart or the Cushman cart. Because up until that time, on a golf course, you'd either wheelbarrow and haul your hoses around or, or take a tractor. And uh, suddenly now you're, you're, you could get your troops around the golf course quickly. I think the 
the utility cord was really the, the mechanism or whatever to help the industry. Yeah, what, it, probably from your first days with Bruce Denny, things are a little bit different as far as equipment, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. We had a, had a tractor and we walked our mowers from green to green in the morning. Uh, we had no way of hauling when you walked them. And, you know, you, the mechanic spends all kinds of time getting the mower ready so it's perfectly sharp. And then you take the thing out across the, the golf course, bouncing around, and the next thing you know, it's out of adjustment. And then they wonder why you don't have a good cut. <laughs> so the uh, utility car certainly takes a lot of that bouncing out of it, really, as long as the guys load them properly and so forth. Is there anything in your career, Paul, that you – wish you would have done, or if you could go back, you'd do something again, or, or do you ever think in those terms? I uh, probably made a few moves that I regret that maybe I wouldn't have done as far as changing jobs, but uh, I, uh, I feel very comfortable with, uh, I, I guess I regret that I, uh, the only regret, the biggest regret I have is I wanted to do the open at Wingfoot. And uh, but my wife was uh, we had her mother living with us, and my wife was getting sick, and I just didn't feel that I could uh, do the right job. So we, I resigned and changed fields. But uh, that's probably my biggest regret to do the second open. Uh, well, you did a, you did a lot of majors, and this is this is fantastic. I'm going to finish this up with one. One final question for you, Mr. Latshaw. I, what would you want people 50, 100, 200 years from now to know about you? 50 years from now, I'll say, who is Paul Latshaw? The only, the only thing they'll probably know is if they look at the uh, Tom Morris Award, and they'll probably question, how did a superintendent get this award? And who was Paul Latshaw? But uh, I think by that time, unless I write a book or something, no one's going to know who Paul Latcher was 50 years from now. Well, you're, you've done so much in this industry. There's there's just so many things that could be covered and what you've accomplished. You know, looking back on that, it's got to be pretty rewarding, isn't it? Yes. As far as what you've done in this industry is very, has got to be very rewarding, isn't it? I mean, how do you feel about that on all you've been able to do in your lifetime? I think I'm very proud of what we accomplished. And, uh, and I'm proud that uh, what I did was able to uh, pass on to uh, the guys who work for me so uh, they could have a promising career. I, 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 I've said this before. Uh, seeing my guys do such a great job is really rewarding to me. It's probably, if I go to sleep at night, I often think about the guys and the sacrifices they made to help me be accomplished. The guys worked hard. They really sacrificed to help me have a successful career. And I think the little the least that I could do is help them be successful in their life. Well, that's, that's terrific. And, Paul, I just have to say, we really appreciate you taking the time for us to do this. And for me, it was an honor and definitely a pleasure to chat with a legend in our industry. Like I said, the, the mountaintop, you're the Mount Rushmore, you're, you're there. So 
I just want to say thank you on behalf of all of us so much for what you've done for our entire industry, for everybody. And we, uh, we so much are uh, grateful for, for what you've been able to do. I want to thank you for taking the time to give me a chance to tell my story too. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. That's a wrap on another episode of the GCSAA podcast. Some great stories, great insights from our guest today, Paul R. Latshaw. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I want to thank Mr. Latshaw for making the time to join us. And I want to thank Howard Richmond for stepping into the host chair for this one and uh, conducting this interview with Mr. Latshaw. You will hear from Howard again on a few upcoming episodes of the podcast as we continue our series of chats with legends from around golf course management. So be on the lookout for those. And finally, a very special thank you to Mr. Paul Romina, who stepped in to help us facilitate this interview. He drove 90 minutes each way uh, to be with Mr. Latshaw in his home as we recorded this episode. So very grateful for Paul's assistance in making this all happen. We will be back very soon with another episode of the GCSAA podcast. But until then, a tip of the cap to our editor and engineer, Evan Bissell. To everyone at Bear for their continued support of the podcast. To the nine members of the GCSAA Board of Directors, to all my co-workers and colleagues at GCSAA headquarters in lovely Lawrence, Kansas, and of course, my thanks to you for subscribing, downloading, and listening. Till we meet again, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch up again down the road on the next episode of the GCSAA Podcast. 